Amen. Thank you, Larry. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to be pulling that out. And uh, if you'll be uh, turning to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, uh, we'll be there in just a moment. But uh, I want to say thank you to Larry for those thoughts and uh, his daughter Summer, who read earlier. And we didn't, we didn't plan that. Um, I didn't know she was going to be reading until a few days ago. And so it's always a blessing to see a father and daughter uh, to share in God's Word together. And uh, thank you to Justin and the praise team. Uh, you may have seen this picture on the screen of a sinkhole uh, this week in Los Angeles County, California. A massive sinkhole that really engulfed two vehicles as rain and flooding continue uh, to just ravage uh, the state of California. Uh, one vehicle was able to escape themselves, uh, but at the bottom there was a mother and a daughter uh, trapped in a car and they were not able uh, to get out. And so it took some 50 LA firefighters uh, to uh, to just att attempt this rescue mission to get this father, this mother and daughter out of this this massive sinkhole. I mean, you just look at doesn't at the picture it doesn't look that deep, but it's actually a, a very deep uh, hole that just the road just came out from underneath these vehicles, and all of a sudden they find themselves uh, trapped. Uh, fortunately, uh, the mom and the daughter were okay. Uh, they were rescued. Um, they only sustained minor. Injuries, but one of the things that, as I looked at this sinkhole and just was reminded of this week, was a book that I read every year uh, to start my year for the past several years. Uh, it's a book called Ordering Your Private World. It's a book by a guy named Gordon McDonald. And uh, I don't know why I started reading this book. Uh, somebody recommended it to me uh, probably uh, a decade ago. And so I've started my year, usually on January 1st, I try to, to read this book. Um, it's written from a pastoral perspective, but it's not just uh, for preachers and pastors. I think that it is, uh, has application for anybody as well. But one of the things that McDonald says in the book, and you'll see this on the screen, is that there are many people whose lives are like a sinkhole. It's likely that at one time or another many of us have perceived ourselves to be on the verge of a sinkhole-like cave-in, in the feelings of numbing fatigue, a taste of apparent failure, or the bitter experience of disillusionment about goals or purposes, that we may have sensed something within us about to give way. We feel that we are just a moment from a collapse that will threaten to sweep our entire world into a bottomless pit. Sometimes there seems to be little that can be done to prevent such a collapse. Uh, and Gordon goes on to say that, that one of the great battlefields of our day in our age is the private world of the individual, the, the inner self, the inner world. And what he says there is that there's this temptation to really give this imbalanced attention to our public worlds, our public lives. And so we, we've spent a lot of time trying to, to put on, you know, this, this public face, if you will. And so uh, one of the things that I've noticed is that this can even uh, happen if, in the church if we're not careful. So you have more programs, more meetings, more learning experiences, more relationships, more busyness until it becomes so heavy at the surface that the whole thing trembles at the verge of collapse. And so what the sinkhole represents it's really this, this physical picture of a spiritual problem which with many Christians must deal. That as the pressures of life continue to grow, uh, that, that we recognize that there will be more people whose lives resemble a sinkhole. 
unless, unless we, we gaze inward. Uh, unless we, we take a moment to re- recognize that, that soul care is, is something that, that Jesus modeled in his life. Our 40 days of prayer is, is not just about finding new shepherds, as we mentioned last week. Our 40 days of prayer is not just about trying to achieve uh, some corporate vision. Uh, our, our 40 days of prayer is an invitation for us as the people of God, as as, as Summer read just a few moments ago from Acts chapter 2, that, that the early church, they devoted themselves to these things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to fellowship and to prayer. And they learned that from their Lord Jesus. So, uh, the shepherds and I have been praying uh, over each one of the cards that was brought forward last week. If you weren't here last week, we had 248 prayer requests that were brought forward. I can't remember the last time I was in church when we had 248 responses. But we had 248 responses last week. And we've been praying through uh, each, of, each of those this week, and, and many of them uh, did not have names on them. They were anonymous, you know, and, and, but, but one of the things that, that hit me as I was just reading through those 248 prayer requests is that many of us are in the midst of a sinkhole season. Or maybe you've experienced uh, a sinkhole in your past. Maybe you're walking through one right now. Maybe you've been called or are being called to walk along someone else who is in the midst of a sinkhole experience. I think many of us can identify with sinkhole experiences in our lives. So we don't just want to hold good worship services here. We want to see transformation in people's lives. This is what it means to be a follower of, of Christ. I believe that this is why we are in this series right now. You'll see it on the screen, practice, Practicing the Kingdom. I believe that this series is one that has been stirring up within me for, for several months now. And so uh, last week um, I got to visit our college students up in the, the college class. and. I'm so thankful uh, for Greg and Kristen Cabe and their many years of, of working with our college students. And I was really, honestly, I was just, I was convicted uh, by, by being in the class. And they were, they were talking about the, the interview that our outreach minister, Willie, did with our, our former staff member, Todd Boat. Uh, and they were talking about how discipleship is not just something that happens, you know, on a Sunday morning inside of a church building. Amen. This is, this is something that, that is, is more than just one hour a week, you know. And I was, I was sitting there, and, and instead of standing and teaching, I was sitting and listening for a change. And it was a gift. And it really caused me to change even some of the things that I'm, I'm talking about today. Uh, so I ended up uh, going down the street to Sanford University this week and just doing a prayer walk uh, across their campus. And if you want to know more about a prayer walk, I'd love to tell you about it. It's just an experience where, where you're walking, you're praying, asking God to move and work, and, 
And Stanford's been, been very gracious uh, to me. They, they let me come and, and use uh, their library, and, um, which can be a little awkward, you know, a 42-year-old hanging out with 18 to 22-year-olds, right? It can be a little awkward, you know, but, but then you, you pass somebody on campus who's not a professor, who is, who is uh, you know, middle-aged, and you kind of give that nod of understanding, you know, we're in this together, you know, as older folks. And, and, and so uh, it's kind of like two Jeeps that are passing each other on the road, like they wave at each other. It's weird, but it's cool. You know, it's, you know I used to own a motorcycle, and we would do that wave thing when you two motorcycles pass. Just watch it if you don't have them. If they pass each other on the street, they kind of wave to each other. And so this is kind of what I was doing on campus as I was passing other, other middle-aged adults. But one of the things that I, I did in the library, I went to the, the religion section. They have a great, uh, you know, resources of, of books there. And I, I, I was thinking about the serious practice in the kingdom. So I saw a book that caught my attention. It was Symbols of Church and Kingdom. So I thought, huh, that's it's what we're talking about. So it caught my interest. I pulled it off the shelf, and uh, I took it back to the desk where I was studying, and I, I opened the book, and the, and the first words that pop off the page as soon as I opened the book were the words, the vine. The vine. And I thought, huh. And that got me to thinking about John chapter 15. And so I went to John chapter 15, and I began reading, and, and one of the things that we learn in the Gospels is that when we, we, we see Jesus, He's referred to as, or refers to Himself really in seven different ways, and, he, and these are called the I Am statements. You'll see these on the screen, the, the different I Am statements in the Gospel of John. So you'll see a reference next to each of these statements. Jesus says things like, like I'm the bread of life. He says, I'm the light of the world. He says, I, I'm the gate, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and the life, I'm, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And then the, the final I am statement that Jesus makes in John's gospel, we find in chapter 15, where Jesus says, I'm the vine. I'm the vine. What, what are you talking about, Jesus? What, what, what does that mean? And, and so here, here's one verse that I hope will travel with us throughout this entire year. John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Jesus is talking to his disciples. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And the temptation for us as Christians is sometimes to say, yeah, but. <laughs> I mean, that may be true, Jesus, but I can do some things. I can do some things on my own. I mean, I've, I've stood before a doctoral committee and presented and defended a dissertation, you know, waiting for either the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And I got the thumbs up. I, I can do some things, right? And this temptation is one that will constantly creep up in our lives to think that, that we are the ones that are able to do that which God has called us to do. The temptation is for me to say, yeah, but, and then we get to Jesus' longest recorded sermon. Jesus, really in response to the weight of the world and the weight of worry in our lives, He calls His hearers to seek first the kingdom. 
This, this is his call. This is, this is his, his, his manifesto to his people. Seek first the kingdom, where the dom, the dominion of, of the king is on display. Seek first the Jesus way. And what's the Jesus way? Well, well, multiple times in this sermon, he uses the word that we are using for this series. Multiple times he uses the word practice. And so this is the Greek word poiaio, it means do, practice. So if you fast forward to the end of the sermon, Matthew chapter 7, if you have your Bibles open in verse 24, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into what? Puts them into practice. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Rain came down, streams rose, winds blew, beat against the house, yet that did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into what? Practice. is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So what are these words that Jesus is calling his followers to put into practice? Don't have time to go through the whole Sermon on the Mount, but one of the things that I did this week was just walk through the Sermon on the Mount. Just to remind myself, what, what are these things that Jesus is calling us to be about? And so, the first that I was reminded of was going back to the very beginning of the sermon. And that is that practicing the kingdom begins with blessing. I believe that somebody needs to hear that this morning. That Jesus could have chose to start his longest recorded sermon any way he wanted to. But he begins with blessing. He doesn't begin with command, thou shalt, thou shalt not. He doesn't begin with, he begins with blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who find themselves in a sinkhole. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. You say, well, I, I don't feel blessed when I'm in those times. I don't feel blessed when, when I'm <laughs> poor in spirit. For those who have faced rejection, for those who feel worthless, for those who are empty, Jesus comes on the scene and says, you, you are important to the kingdom of God. You are blessed. Practicing the kingdom begins with blessing. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus goes on to say, in the same way, let your light shine. Once you know who you are, then you know what to do. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So practicing the kingdom, yes, it begins with blessing, but it also involves practicing good deeds. Once you know who you are, you know what to do. I mean, what would it look like this week if it, every situation that you found yourself in, you asked yourself the question, what would the reign of Christ, what would the rule of Christ look like in this situation? Students, what would it look like in school? Adults, what would it look like in your workplace? What would it look like in your neighborhoods? What would it look like in the doctor's office? If every place that you found yourself, you asked yourself the question, what would the reign or rule or dominion of Christ look like in this context? What would it look like to practice 
the kingdom. In 1960, two Church of Christ missionaries felt called to go and serve in Ethiopia. And the government uh, told these missionaries that they couldn't just come in and preach Christianity, that they had to perform a public service of some kind. And so imagine that. If you want to preach Jesus to our people, you have to be Jesus to them first. This was back in the 60s. And so the missionaries looked around for people that they could minister to, and they, they found individuals who were deaf, which is often a neglected and shunned group of people in Ethiopia. And so the missionaries set up a school for children who are deaf, but not just for those who were deaf, also their siblings who could hear. And they had both of them come to the school. Both of them learn sign language. You'll see a picture of the school today on the screen. And so in the 60s, there was no real sign language in Ethiopia, so the Ethiopian Christians developed one using American sign language as a model and modifying various words to fit in this East African context. So for instance, the word coffee is very important in the Ethiopian culture. Just like the word coffee is pretty important here today. I see some of you have your cup with you. You can't even, you know, you, it's important, right? And so even in, in, in Ethiopia, it's important. But, but here's the, the difference. The, the sign for coffee in American Sign Language is to grind. But guess what? Ethiopia, they don't grind their coffee. They pound it. <laughs> So they had to change the, the sign language in order to, to fit uh, the culture. And the school, the sign language, really took off in the 60s. The Ethiopian government now sends its workers to the Makanisa school to train in sign language. And both Christians and Muslims enroll their children into the school. I want you to look on the screen. You'll notice some of the kids that attend that school today. I'm actually going to go back to the, the previous picture, and you'll see uh, two men shaking hands, but do you notice what is behind those two men? It's a container, because some three decades ago there was a severe famine in Ethiopia. And when the government was looking around to say, okay, well, where, where should we distribute relief efforts, you know, where, where should that be? It was, it became a no-brainer for them to say, these are, these, the Christians, these are the ones who are caring for the people. Let's, let's put the container there. And so all this food and, and was distributed from this container some 30 years ago, and a container that was providing physical health and nourishment for people is now today serving as the school's chapel and providing spiritual nourishment for people. Can you imagine what would happen if whatever context we found ourselves in, we ask that question, what does the reign of Christ, what does the rule of Christ look like here and now? Who are the underserved in our communities? I'm grateful for folks like the Shells and the Elmores who help oversee feeding the food insecure here and in Jonesboro. Uh, those who started to go and feed underneath the bridge several years ago, those who 
serve in our hospital apartment ministry, those who serve in our family care ministry, all great ministries. But the reality is, is that you encounter people every single day that the ministry staff and the shepherds here will never meet, will never see. And you have the opportunity to ask yourself that question, how will you demonstrate God's love into a jaded and hurting world this week? Matthew 5, 19. You see how this sermon begins to change lives? Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 22, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. That's what anger does. It tears others down, raises questions about their worth as a person, and Jesus says, let me tell you how seriously I take this. Matthew 5, 23, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Can you imagine what the world would look like today if everyone laid down their anger? Can you imagine if we said, I think that my relationships are more important than my worship. I can't imagine going to worship while I have these unreconciled relationships out there. So practicing the kingdom involves practicing reconciliation. You've heard me talk about the television series, uh, The Chosen, uh, it just came out with season three of this series, a, a series on the life of Jesus. And they start out this season, for those of you who have seen it, and for those of you who have not, they start out the season with Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a, it's a really neat depiction. I mean, it, we don't know exactly how all that went and how, I mean, we, we have the words rec recorded, but we don't know what the environment exactly looked like. We can take some, you know, some, some stabs at it, and this is one depiction of what that may look like. But what really caught my attention was that after the sermon, and this is kind of the, the hope of all preachers, I guess. But after the sermon, the disciples actually go out and start practicing what Jesus just said. They actually go out and start doing it. And this is one of the areas, this, this area of reconciliation is one of the areas that they go out and practice. And so the examples they show are, are not recorded in Scripture, but I think it gives us some imaginative thought of what that could have looked like. So they, they show Matthew, who was a tax collector, going to his father's house and reconciling with his father, who had probably disowned him for being a tax collector, for getting in bed with the Romans and extracting taxes from their people. And his father could have very likely have disowned him, and so Matthew goes to his father's house and they, they reconcile. 
Andrew goes and sees Mary Magdalene, one of the women who followed Jesus. And he asks her for forgiveness because of the way that he viewed her, the way that he thought about her, the, the worthlessness that he placed on her in his own mind. And he asks her for forgiveness. Again, those two examples are not recorded in the text, but can you imagine going out and practicing the words that Jesus has just proclaimed? What that be, the ripple effect that that began to have in that community, the ripple effect that it began, and some 2,000 years later, we're still living and practicing the ripple effect that the inbreaking kingdom had on this earth. But Jesus says, be careful. Matthew chapter 6, be careful not to what? Not to practice. Not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Which leads us to this point that practicing the kingdom is not for you to be seen but for God to be praised. I, I'm preaching better than your amen in today, because that, that one right there is one that we need to take to heart. I, I confess to you, I, I wrestle. I wrestle with this one. I wrestle with it. And, and I think one of the temptations that we have, particularly in our day and age, that, that social media has given us this platform to really abuse this one if we're not careful. And so I, I wrestle when we post things that, that we're doing in the community and we, we market and we get the, you know, I, I wrestle with those things, but my prayer is that every time one of those is put out, is God let this not be about glorifying our church name. Let this not be about glorifying me as an individual. Let this, Father, let this be an encouragement to those who see it, that they too would want to practice what being a part of this kingdom means. Matthew 6, when you pray, go into your room, close the door. Pray to your Father who is unseen, then your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. As we reflect tomorrow on the life of Martin Luther King Jr. and his legacy in the civil rights movement, I'm, I'm really reminded of the words and an observation from the book, Never to Leave Us Alone, The Prayer Life of Martin Luther King Jr. That King never separated intellectual ability, moral responsibility, and social praxis from deep personal spirituality and piety. In other words, King realized that the resources of mind, heart, soul, and spirit came together as a necessary precondition for vibrant and successful ministry and mission. The fruit, prayer, as he viewed it, was an essential ingredient to his equation. So as we continue our 40 days of prayer, I believe that God is stirring the waters of our soul. 
He's stirring the waters of the sinkhole experiences in our lives. I've already heard a few stories of how that is happening even among people in this room. My prayer is that we cling to the words of the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask you to say these words with me as we close out today. Everyone together. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Will you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we stand in awe of who you are. We stand in awe of who you make us. You are a God who would stoop low, put on flesh, and dwell among us in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, may we be a people that have the same incarnational transformation in our own lives. Father, we thank you that you have blessed us even in our darkest hours, even in our sinkhole moments, even in those moments where we feel rejected and worthless, that you are a God who comes and stoops low and says you're blessed. Father, I love Jesus for that. I love him. But not as much as you love us. So as we walk into our weeks this week, Father, may we ask ourselves that poignant question. What would it look like for the kingdom of God to break out right here, right now? Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen.